0: This audio recording is presented by New City in Downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Third John, verses nine through fifteen. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. And I hope to see you soon, and we'll, we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So today is our final Sermon, it's our final message, three in a row on 3 John. If you've been with us, you realize it's very short. It's, in, in the original Greek, it probably took up one piece of paper, maybe about this big or so, maybe a little bigger, less than 250 words, very short. It's a personal letter to a man named Gaius. Last week, we learned more about Gaius. We learned that John was exhorting him for walking in truth And love. And we talked about the fact that to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, really is a lifelong pursuit of understanding and living into the tension we feel of knowing the truth and then putting it into practice. Discipleship is about walking in truth and in love. And this week, the whole topic turns. We go from an exhortation to Gaius this issue with the Today's passage is about conflict in the church. Now, all of us have experienced conflict at various levels. We've all experienced it in the church. We've either heard horror stories. We've either been on the receiving end of very, very difficult things. And maybe some of us in repentance look back and realize that we ourselves played a key part And a horrible conflict in the church. Wherever we are, conflict is real. Conflict was in the churches of those led by the apostles, the very ones who walked with Jesus. Even their churches had conflict. So conflict is real, conflict is horrible, and conflict happens. Now, before we start, we have to be clear, not all conflict is equally bad. Not all conflict is bad at all. Some conflict is necessary, and there are certainly categories of conflict, right? Just two main categories that we see in Paul's life in ministry, for example. There's one category where conflict arises just simply out of a complex, confusing situation. Uh, there's no immediate right or wrong. There's no sinning against one another. There, there's probably no need for reconciliation, There's just need for communication and clarifying, right? And so an example of that type of conflict, which is good and helpful would be in Acts, we see of a time when Barnabas and Paul on a missionary journey have a disagreement. And that disagreement is whether or not Mark should come along to the next stop in the journey. Well, Barnabas thinks so, yes. He thinks he'll be helpful and faithful. Well, Paul is still concerned because at one point in the past, Mark, for various personal reasons, left the mission field and left them hanging. They, they were there as a team and he left. And Mark is, I'm sorry, Paul is still trying to figure out if Mark is the best person to bring along on this missionary journey. Well, as they talk about it, we don't hear a whole lot, except that it seems they agree to disagree. The mission continues to go forward, but they each go their separate ways. Mark going with Barnabas, And Paul taking up another missionary partner and going out. And so some conflict, we don't know who was right. We don't know who was wrong. But there was a conflict. There was communication. There was clarification. And the mission goes forward. That's one type of conflict. Another type of conflict though, as complex as it is always, you do realize that, right? Conflict is always complex. It's always difficult. But sometimes in the midst of conflict, in the midst of all of the complexity, it is clear that someone is in the wrong. Someone is wronging the other person. Another familiar example in Paul's ministry would be in the letter to the Galatians when Paul says that he noticed Peter eating with the Gentiles, probably bacon or something really good like that. And then James and some other family members, that is to say brothers in Christ, come rolling into town to see how God is spreading his mission in the world. And Peter sees them and out of a desire to be accepted, out of a desire not to have conflict, he actually refrains. He, he hides what he's been doing. Paul sees it. And opposes him to his face. Calls him out and says, what you're doing is not only against the gospel, but it's hindering the mission of God. Because now you're, you, are, you are confusing the Gentiles. These young converts, you're confusing them. And it's not in line with the gospel. And presumably, Peter says, thank you, repents, and they move on. But in that type of conflict, it was clear that something in Peter's heart was causing him To live in such a way where Paul had to confront him. That conflict exists. And that's the type of conflict that we see today in this passage. So where I want to start though is I thought we were the church. I thought the Holy Spirit lived among us. I thought Jesus was changing us. Well he is. He is. But there is still conflict. There's still conflict. So the question I wanna start with first off today is this, to get us started. Why is conflict inevitable in the church? Simply put, conflict is inevitable in the church because as long as sin is in the world, there will be conflict. As long as you and I and anyone in Jesus' church Have an inordinate desire, that is to say a misguided desire, a selfish desire, a controlling desire. As long as any of us in our heart have an inordinate desire to be made much of. To be self-important. To be right at every cost. To be self-centered. As long as that reality exists, there will always be conflict in the church. Now, all of us have different experiences in conflict in the church. Like I mentioned at the beginning, some of us have been uh, exposed to horrible conflict and others have just heard about it or seen it, but we've all been affected by conflict. And what I wanna say is that depending on your experiences in the church, as we read this, you may find it difficult to resonate with Diotrephes. That is to say, you'll identify more with John and Gaius instead of Diotrephes. But let me tell you, I would recommend that as we go through here, that you would take this time as an opportunity to reflect on your own heart and see what it is in Diotrephes in his heart and how that might exist in your heart as well. Now, what was in Diotrephes' heart, that's hard to say, Diotrephes, his heart, what was it in his heart that caused this conflict? Well, John tells us in verse nine. First of all, He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. Apparently, a letter, most likely not 2 John or 1 John, John had sent to the church. But Diotrephes said, no, he wouldn't receive it. He wouldn't have it read in the church. And he rejected John's reaching out to him. That's what John means by, I've written something to the church. The question is, why? And John tells us simply, he likes to put himself first. He likes to put himself first. In Diotrephes, it's this desire to be made much of. It's self-love that he's talking about. He likes to be first. And this type of self-love always leads to disrupting every relationship. There's no boundaries. If, If you are first, if you have to be first, if you're driven by a need to be first, relationships no longer matter because you don't live in reality anymore. Everything becomes about you. And for Diotrephes, this desire that turned him in on himself, we'll read a few things that spill out of that reality. But before we do, let me ask you this. Is there a part of you where you have to be first, that you have to be right? What is it in you that has a desire to be made much of? What is it in you that has a desire to be important? To be not only important, but more important than others. What do you find your identity in? What makes you awesome in your own mind? Whatever that thing is, for Diotrephes, it's a love of being in charge. And, and by any way, commentators and, and historical study Of that time will say this phrase likes to put himself first. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. But in that day and age, in the culture, it was used all of the time. And it was used about those leaders who would use anyone in any way to gain power. So that's what Diotrephes is doing. Now, how is that bleeding over? How is that coming out into his life So for Diotrephes, this inordinate desire to be first at any cost in any relationship does a few things. First, it creates a false world in his head where John is less than human. Let's read. Verse 10. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. This is what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. This phrase, wicked nonsense. It means this, babbling foolishly. In other words, everything he's saying about John has no basis in reality. The accusations that he's spreading about John, they're not real. They're not real. And in fact, you could say it this way, he's shadow boxing with a person who doesn't exist, right? Do you ever do that in conflict? All of a sudden you have a conflict with someone and you're just stewing over it. And you're thinking, man, that person, They did that on purpose. They're out to get me. They're slandering me. Whatever it is, you start shadow boxing with a person who doesn't actually exist. And you're no longer living in reality. And what you're doing is you're essentially tearing them down to where they're no longer human because they're not a person. Because in your mind, they're a punching bag. In your mind, they're only what they do wrong. In your mind, they're only false motives. And none of it is real. And none of it's based in reality. That's what Diotrephes is doing to John. He's creating a false world in his head where John is less than human. In conflict, it always starts there. Conflict that gets out of hand, I should say, always starts there. What's, what's next? Well, he rejects the church's leadership and authority. He already said that. Now, listen, this is incredibly serious. Incredibly serious. Ultimately, the authority of the church and its leaders is based in Jesus Christ, in the foundation of the scriptures given by the apostles. In John chapter 13 and chapter 20, Jesus sends out an envoy of disciples. And he makes it really clear that because I'm sending you, when you go into that city, it's as if you are me. So Jesus dies. He's raised, he comes back, he ascends into heaven. And for 40, 50, 60 years now, the church has been growing rapidly. John's about to die. He's the last apostle living. Everyone else is dead. His brother James, the first one to die. He is Jesus' representative. He's the last apostle. And by not receiving the people that he had sent, Diotrephes himself is rejecting not only John, but Jesus' teaching. So this is the point, is that when we, in our own selfish ambition, turn in on ourselves in the midst of conflict and we start shadowboxing with the people in our head, living in a reality that, that's not completely true, we then begin to reject authority. And what we do when we reject authority is we don't say I no longer believe the Bible. We say the way I feel is more important than what the Bible says. We make our own emotions. We make our own false reality. We're creating our authority instead of God and his word. That's exactly what Diotrephes is doing. So for you, in your experience of conflict in the church, in your experience of conflict in general, how quick do you run to shadow boxing with your spouse or with a coworker, for instance, to take the boundaries out a little farther. What about in the church? What about in your community group? When someone does something, this, this is, I don't know why we do this kind of stuff, but when someone does something in our community group, it's just annoying, that's it. just starts simple. It's like, why, did, why do they say it like that? Or, or uh, their personality is a little off or it just rubs me the wrong way. It starts there. Instead of realizing that it's your issue, You then begin to say, I bet they do it on purpose. I bet they don't only do it on purpose, but that just proves that they're weird. And we start to create this reality where our view of reality is not only false, but it also makes us the standard that everyone else must live up to. How do we pursue reconciliation when our standard, which is always about us, becomes the standard? Well, it's a question that we need to think about and it is the issue that John is dealing with with the atrophies, okay? This is the last thing he did. Not only did he create this false reality of John, when I say false, remember, it's not just idle chatter. It's not just a slipped word here or there. It is slander. It is all out attack on John, Jesus' best friend. Therefore, the gospel And then after that, he lastly tries to convince everyone of his fake reality and then tell them if they don't believe in the way he feels about John, he's going to kick them out of the church. Let's read that. Not content with that, that is slandering me and making himself the authority, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. How in the world does he do this? Now, we're not sure if Diotrephes is a church leader. Is he an elder? Is he a pastor? Probably not. What I'm about to say is somewhat conjecture, but it's fun enough to say, so I'm going to say it. Okay, Diotrephes, the name means son of Zeus, something like that, roughly. Okay, so he probably was Greek. And not only that, but can you imagine a peasant person naming their child son of Zeus? Probably not which means he probably came from money, which means he probably expects to be a leader, even if he's not. But what is most certain is that he is a man of some means and he is able to have a house large enough for a church to meet in it. You see, church in this day wasn't like this, it was in houses, so similar to our community groups. So if he's hosting something like a community group and you come to his door and he answers and he says, You're siding with John? You're siding with him? No. You can't come in here. Get out of here. That's what he's probably doing. And here's the thing. You can't just go to another community group. If I kick you out of my community group, you can't just go to Chris Moore's community group. Because there is no other community group. Remember, there was no church house on every corner in the area that we're speaking of in this day and age. To be kicked out of a house church was to be excommunicated. It was to be cut off from the body of Christ. And he thinks that this reality within him is worth hindering the gospel. That's what he thinks. Now, this is where I think all of us begin to make a villain out of Diotrephes. Remember, this is when I say, I think we're tempted not to identify with Diotrephes, but to identify with Gaius or John himself. But let me say, we are all capable of causing this type of conflict. If there's any desire in you ever to make much of yourself at the expense of someone else, you are a threat to the spread of the gospel in your church. And so am I. If I make my ministry about me and I sacrifice other people in order for me to get approval, I am deatrophies. You are diotrophies. We all can be diotrophies. So here's the question then. Why does conflict exist? Because evil, selfish desire still exists in our hearts. But if that's true, do we have any hope? What do we do? And that leads us to the second thing I want us to see, and that's this, that in conflict, good character is is imitable. Now you may be thinking, why does it not say imitatable? And I'll tell you why, because all week I was saying imitatable and it's not a word. (laughs) It's not a word, look it up. Not now, but later, Google it. It's not a word. Imitable, from the Latin root, to mimic or imitate. Imitable, that's what I mean, okay? And the word here, imitate, we get the word mimic from. So we're in verse 11 now. John, after stating the fact, which how much more loving could he get, by the way, did he attack the atrophies? No, and we'll talk about that later. But what did he do that was so loving? He stated the facts as clear as he could. And then he says, Gaius, Gaius, he starts, beloved. Don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You see, our character is made up of the choices that we make ultimately, right? Over time, if someone does something crazy, you say, well, that was out of character. Why? You would say that because it's not consistent with the choices they normally make. And what John is saying is, make choices for the good, not evil. And then he says this, whoever does evil has not seen God. See God. Well, it's interesting because in 1 John, same author, he said no one has ever seen God. God is a spirit. Spirit. What does he mean? Well, clearly he means see God in faith. See God with eyes of faith. Because those of us who see God, that is to say God in Jesus Christ with eyes of faith, it changes us. And to be able to see God with eyes of faith is a gift. And so therefore, when we see Jesus with the eyes of faith, we know we are from God. And when we are from God, our character that's been given to us is to imitate the good, not the evil. I think John, in his own humble way, is saying, Gaius, brother, imitate me. Look what I'm doing. Look, what I'm, look how I'm handling this. If you wanna know what to imitate, because by the way, good and evil, they're abstract nouns, Right? I said this last week, you can't get a bucket of good and give it to someone. So you have to see it embodied. It's just like truth. You have to see it lived out. So we need someone to imitate good for us. And I think for us in this passage, that's John. And I think he's calling Gaius to imitate him in at least two ways. The first way is this. Imitate me by giving the gift of your presence. Look with me. I see this in two places. In verse 10, he says, so if I come, and I know that that makes it sound like he's not sure if he's gonna come, but this is what he's really doing. Let me tell you what he's really doing. He's essentially saying, get ready, I'm coming. I hope you'll receive me as a guest. It's just a polite way of preparing Gaius for the fact that he's gonna come and crash at his place, probably with some of his friends. That's what he's doing. So he is coming. And then he tells us later here in verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. And I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Face to face. You remember what Diotrephes is doing at the very beginning, he's creating this false reality. He's shadowboxing with a John that doesn't exist. You realize it's not like he FaceTimed John recently. It's not like he got on the phone and talked to him. Who knows? It's been weeks, months since he's talked to him. And he still is living in that world where he's dehumanizing John. He is objectifying this false reality. And it keeps, it keeps uh, confirming itself in his own mind. Why? Because he doesn't have to look John right in the eye. He doesn't have to look him in the face and say, I believe you're wrong. And I believe you're not after the best of the church. And I believe that I know what's best. But John realizes this, that something happens when you get face to face with someone. When you're in conflict, all of a sudden, the very presence of that person sobers you like that. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sober you? And they're in front of you, and you can no longer objectify them. You can no longer dehumanize them. And in conflict, I think one of the best ways we can imitate good, one of the best ways we can first see Jesus with eyes of faith, and then move into conflict towards reconciliation. The only way that happens is face to face. For me, there was a time, it was early in my ministry, and uh, I was still in seminary, but I worked on staff full time at, at a church. Bless you. I worked full time on a church at a church on staff, and um, there, there got to this point where I was learning a lot. I was young. I hadn't failed very much in my life because I didn't have enough experience yet to fail. And so I always was right, always. And not just right in in fact and in word, but also right in my opinion and right in my attitude and right in the way I understood people. And I was serving with a church planter. And it's funny, I look back now and when he planted, he would have been just a couple years older than me. And it's similar to when I look back and, and I have bad memories of my parents and I realize they were my age when that happened. I have tons of grace, right? So I look back and he would have been my age and I think, oh, of course he would have made mistakes. And in fact, he did much better than I could have. But in the moment, I didn't know and I didn't have any experience to look back on. And I remember one night, I, it was after an, a session meeting, that is the, the leaders, the elders of the church. And he said, hey, Damien, I have some things I'd like to talk to you about. If you can stay afterwards. And it was late, but I stayed. And I said, yeah, what's up? And he said to me, I need to know one thing. Are you with me? Or are you against me? Because I'm in battle. And I'm holding the front line. And I really want you right here. And you haven't said anything but I can tell, I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in the way you react. I can see it in your posture. I can see it in everything. You don't have to say anything because I know that in your mind, you're not with me. In your mind, you think you're right. In your mind, you think you're better and you could do it better. He's looking me in the eye and he says, is that right? And I wept. I just wept. He called me. To the carpet. And when I started weeping, he just held me. And he said, it's okay. I love you. That never would have happened unless he would have come to me face to face. And although we'll see we don't know exactly what ends up happening with the atrophies, I think that John has something like that in mind. I think John realizes that in the midst of conflict... Character, good character, is imitable. When we see Jesus with eyes of faith, we're moved in to -to face-to-face realities with people and it melts away. I think the second way that we can imitate John is this. We can show patient mercy. Commentators will tell you that this has been going on for months and that John has been taking one step at a time, hoping that the theotrophies would repent. And it's now to the point where he's about to split the church. He's drawn a line in the sand. And he's saying, you're either with me or you're with John. That can never go good. And so now he has to step in, not only with his presence, which he plans on doing, but also patient mercy. Notice this. He doesn't say that Diotrephes is evil. He doesn't call him evil. He says, imitate what is good, not what is evil. What he's effectively saying is what Diotrephes is doing is evil. Do you realize that John has everything he needs to absolutely Bury Diotrephes. And John's not afraid to do it. If you read 1 John and 2 John, he's calling all types of people antichrists. I mean, he's going after people. He has no problem speaking very directly. But for some reason, he doesn't bury Diotrephes. And he's given him all this time. And now he's, he's probably 90 some years old. And he's going to travel all the way to the city in his region to speak with Diotrephes. Why? Why does he show this patient mercy? Where does this patient mercy come from? And we're going to get there in just a second. But let me ask you this. In conflict, when was the last time you moved into it with your presence? Even if you're the one who's causing the conflict. If you're shadowboxing with someone in your head, go to them. Go to them and sit face to face with them. And tell them, these are the things that I'm thinking in my head. Are they real? Because I'm afraid that they're not. And if they are, I want us to move past this. It's not about me destroying you in my mind. It's about reconciliation. And if someone, if you're in conflict with someone, in your community group, in the church, in your household, and you believe you've been wronged, How will you show patient mercy? I think first you give the gift of presence, you pursue. And then you're patient, knowing that sometimes it takes a while when you've locked yourself in your own world to come out of it. Be patient. But still, the question is why? Why should we? Why was John, and why didn't he bring the beat down like he did with the other people that he called the Antichrists? I think this is why it's not, this portion is not just about the inevitability of conflict because of the evil desires in our heart. And it's not only about the fact that John wants us humbly giving God the credit. It's eyes of faith that move us in and out of conflict successfully. It's eyes of faith that produce pursuing good in us. John just doesn't want us to know that, those two things. I think he also wants this. The third thing, in Christ, our inordinate desires change. I believe John knows that deatrophies desires, as inordinate are they are, that is mis- misinterpreted, misordered, too large. He believes Jesus can change diotrophies. This week in community Bible reading, we're in Luke. And in chapter nine, Jesus calls his Apostles, if you remember this. Jesus calls them out. That is to say, he says, follow me. And he names them. And there are two brothers named James and John. Do you remember what he called them? The sons of thunder. John. I don't know. I don't ever think of John as a son of thunder. And you know what that would mean is these men were quick With truth. They were quick with a temper. They were quick to intervene. They were fast. They were furious. They were fierce. And it sounded like thunder. That's what it means. And he calls them that. He sees that in them. But Jesus isn't scared of that. And he names it and he says, that too I can work with. Well, later on in chapter 9, there are a couple instances where James and John, this is the same John, Sons of thunder do some interesting things, but the one I wanted to share with us because I think in this thing that we're about to read, this passage from uh, Luke chapter 9, in that passage, we see most clearly John's transformation and his belief that Jesus changes us. So I think it'll be on the screen. This is from Luke 9, starting in verse 52. He, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now let's just stop there. Does this sound familiar? So remember in 3 John, John is writing to Diotrephes because he had sent men out ahead of him. Representing him. And Diotrephes does not receive them. And in this text, Jesus sends John and the disciples out ahead of him. And the Samaritans did not receive him. It's the same word. So how does John respond? So the people did not receive them. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, "Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So John, the son of thunder, isn't received, and he says, "I will kill you." <laughs> I will end you right now." And he asked Jesus, "This doesn't the sons of thunder. This is wrong. Let's kill him. That's what a son of thunder does. But John, throughout a lifetime of ministering and walking with Jesus, somehow moves from a son of thunder who because he was wronged and because his reputation was hurt just a little bit, he goes from wanting to kill someone to being known as the apostle of love. That's what we call John. The apostle of love, the son of thunder to the apostle of love. And I think he looks out at Diotrephes and he sees himself. He partly sees himself this desire to be made much of, this desire to have people come up behind and follow, this desire to be received and respected. And yet here he shows grace. He shows grace. He doesn't bury Diotrephes because he was Diotrephes and we can be Diotrephes. You see, in the midst of conflict, when you know you can bury someone, you can bury them. You have all the facts. They are wronging you. It is only the gospel that will keep you from burying them. It's only the gospel that will call you back to love and believe that God can change them like he changed you. And on the other side, if you're the one who's bringing the conflict, if you're causing the conflict, in that moment when you're sobered up and you realize what I'm doing is despicable, I'm not seeing God with eyes of faith. I'm not submitting to his authority. The only way you have any hope of not being buried when you deserve it is the gospel. It's the fact that Jesus, the ultimate one we've rejected, over and over, he brings his very presence. Where do you think John got the idea of the power of presence? It's Jesus. Jesus comes and brings his presence to reconcile us to him. In the midst of conflict, he says, look me in the eye. I know what you've done and I love you. And those of us who have been wronged, he looks us in the eye and he says, I was wrong too. I know what it's like, but I love them and I love you. You see, in the gospel, when we deserve to be buried, we're not. And when we have the opportunity to bury someone, we don't. That is the gospel. Jesus, with all of the right to bury me and you, he doesn't. But he comes and the father buries him on our behalf. He puts all of his wrath and anger and justice on Jesus. So you and I can walk away. And just as we read in the call to worship, as we've been forgiven, slowly but surely, as we reflect on that reality, we too, can move into the world empowered to forgive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that although we are causers of conflict and we have inordinate desires in us that make us imitate what is evil, we know that you will not Bury us, you will not destroy us, you will not bring judgment upon us. You bore it for us. So I pray as we move out today in response and these songs we're about to sing, and when we get to the end and you send us out into the world with your blessing, that you would remind us powerfully that patience, mercy, presence, It all is there in Jesus. Help us move into conflict with grace. Help us move into conflict, even pain, with mercy as Jesus did with us. And it's in his name we pray.